is Tony Johnson with Heron.org Soundbites. I'm here today with Tom Mitchell, Managing Director for Cambridge Associates Mission-Related Investing Practice. Hi, Tom. Hey, Tony. How are you? So, Tom, Heron is doing a joint survey project with Tonic, and so we're asking some of the members of Tonic's managers and investment advisors to weigh in on what they're doing and how they see the space. Could you give me a brief overview of the types of impact services you provide and a glimpse at your typical impact client and maybe elaborate thoughts on investors who might be way ahead of the curve? Sure, sure. Well, at Cambridge Associates, we provide a full range of services that goes from everything from fully outsourced discretionary investment uh, advisory sports or the outsourced CIO model is what uh, it's, I think, most easily described as, all the way to very project-specific things we might do for a given client. So we believe that every investor is unique in many regards, and which is what we can talk about further, how that spills over to impact. Um, so we look to provide highly customized services. Um, I think a more typical client, I'd really maybe describe two types of clients that are perhaps more typical. You have they're a very large foundation client, which say has greater than a billion dollars in investment assets and probably in-house investment staff and their program staff. And so, as you all know, there's been an increasing trend for these foundations to start looking at impact investing. And frankly, I think they're figuring out how to how to build a bridge between the programmatic side of the house and the investment side of the house. And so, uh, with some of those clients, we're helping them build that bridge and think about how to take a more holistic view. And then I think our you know our average client size is a client that has a similar size to Heron, is for having a few hundred million dollars, having good staff, typically not having a lot of investment staff, so different than Heron in that regard. And we end up being the outsourced investment office, or at least the extension of staff for the foundation. So it's a very high-touch, highly engaged advisory relationship, thinking through strategies, thinking through how to manage the total portfolio, and with particular to impact, how to really best integrate that in with the portfolio and the overall operations of the enterprise. The ones that are ahead of the curve are the ones that have already worked through on an institutional side. Those that have already worked through some of the organizational challenges, thinking about how to have a much better and integrated conversation between a programmatic side and the investment side so that it's not so much a a binary one or the other. But I think that there's been a fairly great awakening, if you will, in the philanthropic community Mm -hmm. with that. I think the other investors who are impact investors who are really at the leading edge, we see that in families and family offices. Typically, you have less bureaucratic decision-making. Um, you have people that have been quite successful because they've taken on taken on a lot of risk uh, to build their wealth and build their influence, and they are certainly willing to look at newer, less proven ideas. Not to say that impact investing is riskier by any means, but that it does take a willingness to embrace embrace risks that are less familiar. Can you talk a little bit about the journey of Cambridge, uh, how you got into impact investing? Was there a learning curve? I've been fortunate to play a a prominent role um, with a group of some really great people in helping build our mission-related investing practice. And so some of uh, some of your fans and listeners may or may not know that uh, certainly the the dawn for Cambridge was in the conversation starting in 2007 and really moving into 2008, launching a group um, with the support of Heron 
uh, with the support of the Annie Casey Foundation and the Meyer Memorial Trust, where there was a general view in the field that consultants are a problem and they didn't know how to talk to people about mission or impact investing. The journey at Cambridge is that in 2008, I said, okay, how do we formalize this practice? And at the time we were organized, and it's still a big part of what we are, we're a big global firm. Today we have we have eight offices around the world. We have about 1,100 clients, all who are trying to do worthwhile things, we think, with their capital. But moving toward more mission alignment and impact is taking it to a new level. So when we first started, we had a group of about five of us sat and said, how do we make this work with inside a big firm? We already have a big research component. We have a big client portfolio manager component. And then we have a lot of data and a lot of information that we manage. And it was really trying to think about how do we build a group that best collaborates with and can sometimes hopefully co-opt some of these resources to drive things forward. In the first couple of years, we had a global financial crisis. People who were more dipping toes in the water were about to do that, really put that on pause. That was an unfortunate time in the capital markets, but it gave us more time to really focus on what are the things we need, the resources we need in the group. And um, you know, fast forward on that journey, we've gone from five people to 35 people globally largely located here in North America, um, in London and Australia, that are working with clients on a variety of impact issues. So we started building out the research capabilities. The market has exploded and there's all kinds of data out there. There are all sorts of new entrants in and the investment manager landscape. We've oriented ourselves around how can we best assess this landscape and find what the absolute best ideas are for our clients. We've been able to use our incredible benchmarking capacities to work with the GIN to build an impact investing benchmark for, for private investment funds, which we don't think is the end of a journey, but the start of one. But it's there's now data available to people who are skeptic to say, this is real and it's powerful and it's potent and we don't have to abandon all of our previously conceived principles around investment management. How do you decide whether something is an impact investment or not? I mean, here at Heron, we say all investing is impact investing. Mm-hmm. You put money on the street, it has an impact. Can you talk a little bit about the various ways that you think about impact investments and the rating systems and screening methodologies? There's a whole universe out there now. It's been my great pleasure to be drinking the Heron Kool-Aid alongside with you guys, and I agree that all, all investments have impact. And so it, it does have a question a question of how can you determine what those impacts are, whether they're positive, negative, and or transformation. I think ultimately what do impact investors want to do is probably important to state before talking about the measurement systems. To my mind, if there's two things that impact investors have in common, and there's many things that impact investors have in common, but there's also many things about which they still disagree and therefore will not collaborate and invest together. Impact investors want to know what they own and why. And they want to understand how the risks and the benefits are distributed um, beyond just to their portfolio or their bottom line. So how are those risks? You know, they could be thinking about financial risks to their portfolio for a given investment, but are they thinking about the risks that they're trying to mitigate in a community or with the environment by making this investment? And the benefits beyond just the dollars returned back to them, it really becomes how can we assess what the benefits are of this investment? And that's where you get into some of the measurement systems. And so some things can be directly measured. Some things can be indirectly measured, and you have to make more assumptions. In 2008, I was hoping, like many, for just a golden algorithm, which is just solve it all and make it easy. But I don't think that's where we're headed or what's needed. I don't think it's possible. And here's why. I mean, if you look at a given enterprise, 
and say, if just we walk around the corner from your office here and go down Wall Street and look at all the equity analysts and say they're looking at one company, they're not just looking at one source of information or one measure to evaluate that company and determine how to deploy capital or if that will be worthwhile. They're looking at several. And so I think we have a, a, an emerging wonderful marketplace of a lot of different data points that come into this. It'd be nice to make better sense of them and get greater clarity of them. If we look at public markets, Cambridge, we, we have Bloomberg and the Sustainalytics data that comes through there. We have we pay money to MSCI uh, to use their data and um, particular ESG ratings. And frankly, you know, if I look at Sustainalytics, they have 76 KPIs, key performance indicators. MSCI has 37. I don't know that for any of my clients that even 37 are most valuable, but I think it's our job to really understand what's driving those. I think the market for their data is just exploding. I think MSCI had 2,000 equities uh, covered globally in 2010, and they have almost 6,000 covered today. Huge increases in this, over 350,000 bonds. And then we even find that bond traders and credit analysts might take a different view on a company's environmental, social, and governance risks than an equity analyst. And the private markets, I've always been a big fan of B Lab and what they were what they do in general with B corporations and, and when they launched the Gears, the global impact and investment reporting system, and have portfolio managers apply that to their underlying companies and really understand what they're doing. And and I think that's great. It becomes very labor intensive and sometimes particularly these funds that are operating in smaller markets and just the economics of these funds are such that they're always a little stressed. So to have one more big big haul to bring that data in can be challenging, but um, I think that they, there's a lot that's been created there that can be built upon. And so I've been tracking a lot of these data providers there and learning what they're doing, and um, we find that they have interesting platforms. I think we're moving more from the CSA model to the Whole Foods model on uh, the selectivity in your basket. The challenge is, though, something needs to stand out, right? So the more information we can put out there, the better. How closely do you track impact performance. You just spent a lot of time talking about the sort of CSA approach to impact performance Mm -hmm. versus the Whole Foods approach (laughs) and how people think about it. So now this 10 year long experience in particular that you've been talking about, what does impact performance tracking look like for Cambridge? And then if a company is going south on impact, what does that discussion look like? As the years have passed and more information has got out there, we've taken the best of what we could find out there to try to reflect that back to clients. I think that only in the last few years can we got to a point where we can really say, where can we draw some real meaningful conclusions from this? But I do think to the point of helping people know what they own and why, that's always been sort of the guiding point. And, um, you know, but it's been very highly customized. I would like to frankly find something that is more scalable and and apples to apples across different investors, that they are paying attention to similar things and valuing similar things in similar ways. Um, because ultimately, if you have a collective wisdom that emerges from that, then and those decisions reflect back onto enterprises, onto asset managers, I think that's where we make progress. The question about what do you do when things are working on one bottom line, on your financial bottom line, but not on, on your social and environmental bottom lines, it's a very interesting one. And I think we, we, sadly, we see far too many instances of where that's the case. Right? So this is when you talk about distribution of benefits, right? There are certain investors that can try to extract all the value out of an enterprise to their financial bottom line. And that could involve reducing headcount, cutting costs, doing all those sort of things in the enterprise that make 
that help the market cap, help a valuation, help an earnings statement, but aren't necessarily holistically beneficial. And you see it both in public and private markets. What it's led to is conversations about, first of all, how much control of our asset do we have? Right? If we're a foundation and we're invested through a money manager, what structure are we invested in? Are we in a limited partnership where capital is locked up and we're largely, frankly, passive investors? I mean, we can, we can pound the table and raise our hand and express displeasure to a fund manager, but ultimately we're just one of several limited partners and there's, there's only so, so much legal recourse we may have other than applying social pressure on something we're not happy about. Or are we in a public market where we could determine whether to own or sell? We could sell immediately if we wanted to, or to engage. And I think it's really, so our conversations really start, what sort of control do you have over the asset at this point? And in situations where you don't have a lot of control, I think that's led to conversations about, well, let's not do that again. <laughs> it's what can we learn from this? If we can't do much now, can we get, our, get in a situation where we're still investing in those types of assets or enterprises in which we want to own, but we'll have more control the next time? Impact investing seems to be in gaining in momentum. Uh, the Vatican is having its second annual impact investing conference, for example. Can you talk a little bit about why, why do you think this is happening now, and how does it relate to longer-term economic trends? I think we live in a time where we know more, we have more, we have more. There's just more of everything, right? More consumption, more pollution. <laughs> there's just so many things that are happening um, in the world that it's... Um, the, the, the world, this is, sounds very Pollyannish, but I think the world needs impact investing in many regards. But I think if I broke it down very, on a capital markets perspective, um, our public markets have been heavily influenced by central bank policy. I mean, we've had major central banks printing money, moving people out on a risk spectrum. So it's hard to actually get comfortable with the valuation of certain assets in the public markets. And they could be written down at some point, i.e. we could have a correction the market. We've had negative interest rates outside the U.S. I mean, most of us, if we're just focusing on the U.S., you say, great, it, you can get a 10-year Treasury bond for less than 2%. Like, that's, that's, that's an expensive bond and not pay me much interest. Well, if you go to Europe, everything's negative. And that puts things in extremes. And at the same time, all, all this monetary policy has driven a bull market and financial markets, but it's not been good for people. Um, for most people, the vast majority. So we've had stagnant rural wages. We have, while unemployment numbers have come down, underemployment and underutilization of great human capital remains high. And we do have a, just a more global economy and a lot of global trade, and that can be quite dislocating for, for many people, and most of whom fall at the lower to moderate end of the income spectrum. I've never been one to believe that there's some magic tipping point, you know, but I do do see these asymptotic curves of once things build enough momentum. That right now, impact is entered in the mainstream, and every asset manager right now has to, absolutely has to understand at a bare minimum what their position is on environmental, social, and governance factors in their investments. So we've talked a lot about at Cambridge what we're doing with our impact investing clients, we cover over 10,000 asset management firms globally, which have about 30,000 funds. We're asking all of them what they're doing about ESG in their funds. So that's something new that we've been doing over the last year and a half, figuring out how to integrate into our database versus the just over 1,000 funds that have self-identified as impact in, in ESG. Um, so where we are right now is everyone has to at least have a position on it. 
Thank you, Tom. For Heron.org, this is Tony Johnson.